The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, It is a little gloomy here in Massachusetts, and I have some colleagues in the western part of the state who have already seen snowflakes falling. So I don't know about you. I don't know if you're ready for it, but I think winter is coming. Uh, I, for one, am not quite there yet. So hopefully it will be a while before it hits us here. Uh, One thing that is definitely coming, the November 1 deadline, that is looming. Um, We are seeing it in our queues where we get uh, essays sent in and we review them and uh, everyone is scrambling to get their essays out the door. Uh, One question that we've been getting a lot and that I thought I would share with all of you is around um, if there is an early deadline, say November 1, or even a deadline in general at a school where they're, um, they don't review the files as they come in. So rolling admissions files get reviewed as they come in. With all other deadlines, they don't get reviewed until after the deadline. And so one question we're getting is if there's any kind of advantage to getting the application in earlier than the deadline um, with those kinds of schools. And the answer is, for the most part, not really. So um, certainly submitting a month or two in advance gets you nothing. You don't get extra points, nothing like that. However, maybe a day in advance or even six hours in advance, 12 hours in advance, two days in advance. What's great about that is you don't get extra points, but you certainly uh, get the benefit of uh, getting in, knowing that you got it in before the deadline, not running into any technical issues that might arise when a flood, tens of thousands of people are trying to submit their applications with a few minutes to spare. Um, if there are any issues or glitches, you have a cushion. So what I would say is there's no advantage from an admissions perspective, but there's certainly an advantage from a, okay, I got everything in and I didn't have a heart attack in the process uh, and I don't have to ask for a special uh, exemption Uh, So maybe a day or two early, but I wouldn't worry about getting it in too much before that. Um, One last thing, congratulations to everybody who got new SAT scores today. I do hope it went as well as you'd hoped it would. Make sure you get those scores out to your schools of interest. Um, We talked about this in last week's show. Sally talked about this. So if you want more detail, go listen to last week's show. One Uh, piece of advice I do have is you don't necessarily want to send via the rush option. Generally speaking, at this time of the year, that's not going to be necessary. Uh, And some schools will not accept them via the rush option. So before you spend extra money to try and get those scores rushed to an institution, make sure you check their website 
to see if they actually accept that. Um, we also have a special announcement later in the show. You got to stick around to hear that one. Um, but a few weeks ago, we devoted an entire show to listener questions, and we're going to do that again. And I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Beth Feinberg Keenan, to the show. She's a former financial aid officer at Northeastern. She currently works here with me at College Coach. Uh, and we're going to do a show of the best today. Hi, Beth. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So thanks for joining me today. We have a ton of questions, so I'm thinking we kind of want to just dive right in. And I'm going to start with a financial aid question for you. And the first question comes from a listener named Desiree who asks, can you explain the financial aid process? It's a big one. (laughs) Perfect timing. You know, as a lot of families who are applying to college are also applying for financial aid. So the first uh, piece of the financial aid process is the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And that's the primary application that families are going to be filling out to apply for financial aid. And when you're filling this form out, uh, one of the big changes for this year, so if you have a senior in high school, you're going to be using taxes uh, taxes from 2015. So there's really no reason to delay uh, filling the FAFSA out. Uh, The way that colleges are going to receive this information, you're going to be able to list up to 10 colleges on the application, and those 10 colleges are going to be able to receive the the, uh, information that you submit on the form. I almost look at the FAFSA as like the common application for financial aid. You're filling out one form, and all the schools are getting it. Uh, Next, uh, if your child's applying to one of the 300 or so private colleges, they may require this additional form that is called the CSS profile, uh, the College Scholarship Service Profile, also known as the profile form now. And this is a fee-based form. It's going to ask a lot of the same questions on the FAFSA and a lot more detail, but it's going to cost you to fill this form out uh, if you happen to be divorced or separated. Uh, some of those schools that require the profile form may require a non-custodial profile supplement. It's so important to check all of the college's websites, figure out what forms they require, also deadlines. Uh, Beth, you mentioned deadlines for admission. Financial aid also has deadlines too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of your kids might be looking at scholarships, uh, wanting to be considered for scholarships. Some schools have earlier deadlines when your child has to apply to the college in order to be considered for scholarships. So it's important to make sure you know what those deadlines are that your child's going to be considered for all types of financial assistance. And also, Beth, as you mentioned, we get that question a lot too, you know, filing the form now versus waiting three or four weeks. Is my child going to get better financial aid if we filed on October 1st versus November 1st? You know, when I worked at Northeastern University, we had a deadline of February 15th. Anybody who applied by February 15th we reviewed all of those applications together. Yep. So whether you applied on February 14th or you know, November 1st, you'd, you'd be looked at the same pool. So for some yep. schools, it may, but for a lot of schools, you know, they're going to look at all of the students who file on time at the same time. And then lastly, you know, some schools may also require additional information, some taxes, W-2 forms, uh, maybe there's some additional supplements. And colleges are going to use this information to put together the financial aid packages. But first and foremost, you know, make sure you know what applications are required for each school and those deadlines because you don't want to miss any of those deadlines uh, to lose out on financial aid opportunities. 
Right. And I think an overarching theme here is that different schools do things differently in terms of the forms they require, the deadlines they require them by. So you can't, as with this, this process in general, whether you're talking about admissions or financial aid, it's rare that you can make a blanket statement and say, all schools do X or everything related to this is due by Y. It's, it's always going to... Right, it's not yep. one size fits all. It's Exactly. Exactly. Um, so you need to be organized and have a way to track all those deadlines, ideally in one place. And um, that's going to be your best friend in this process, I think. And Definitely. Too. We're going to be your good friends, too. All right. <laughs> awesome. So thank you. What, do you. what do you got for me on the admissions side? So the first question that we have, Beth, is we have a question from um, one of our listeners, Joyette. And she wants to know what topics are good for essays and which topics should kids stay away from? Uh, a very popular question right now, and I would add to that, how important are these essays anyway, as we are getting panicked calls and submissions from students and parents uh, whose students, either the students themselves or the um, the children of the parents asking us this, have waited a very long time to write these essays, and now they're panicking because the first draft, it didn't all come together in one quick first draft, and now they're not ready to submit because the essay needs work. Um, first of all, I would say that there are very few topics that I would say are absolutely positively verboten. I would never write about it. Um, and even then, I usually need to give the caveat that in, in the right hand, sometimes really any topic could be um, addressed. But I would say as a general rule of thumb, I would try to steer clear of topics like the first time you fell in love or, you know, how much you love your boyfriend or your girlfriend, um, that kind of uh, a thing, because it's just not really particularly appropriate. Um, we have seen a couple of essays come in recently about... Um, I don't know how to put this so delicately, but about kind of important life moments, bodies changing, um, uh, you know, just those big private moments that maybe you might talk about with your parents or maybe not even them. Guess what? Those are not important. Those are not moments that you really want to share with an admissions committee. I would say there are some really common topics that I advise students to stay away from just because in a process where you're trying to stand out, if you write about the same thing as everyone else, it's going to make you blend in. I would include in that um, writing about the community service that you did because you think the colleges want to hear about it. So it isn't something that's all that important to you, but you did it and you figure, oh, colleges want to hear how I did community service because that makes me a good person. Or a very common one is um, playing a sport. So the big game that you won or lost, the major sports injury that derailed your career or that you came back from, uh, these are all pretty common. Camp is another common thing to write about. I will say I think camp lends itself sometimes to alternate angles that can be. So I've had students write essays about camp that were quite strong. But um, then again, I've also seen a million camp essays that were a lot like the other essay that I had read before. Um, so those are some topics I think that maybe you want to stay away from. In terms of good topics, really, the sky is kind of the limit. 
Um, but I think the key is really to choose a topic that is unique to the student where they're telling one story about themselves rather than trying to tell a million different stories. Um, you want to show and not tell. So that means you want to let the reader come to the conclusion you want them to come to by sharing examples and anecdotes and self-reflection rather than saying, I really, you know, I'm really good at um, sticking to what I say I'm going to do. I really persevere through challenges. Um, I've seen essays that basically repeat some version of that over and over and over again, whereas if they had chosen a story that showed those personal qualities and my takeaway was, wow, that student really is good at doing what he says he's going to do and really sticking to something through some challenging times, uh, that's always going to be a more compelling essay. On the last angle around how important are these, uh, any school that asks for them, they are going to play a role. They're going to be more important at some schools and less important at others. So at schools that are admitting less than half of their applicant pools, I think you can assume, so if the acceptance rate is below 50%, you can and should assume that these are going to be an important part of the process. Because what that means is they're getting more qualified applicants than they have space for. And therefore, they're looking at more than just grades and test scores in order to determine who they're going to admit. And the things that they look at when they go beyond grades and test scores are things like what you do outside of the classroom, who's writing your letters of recommendation and what they have to say about you and what you have to say about yourself in your essays. So for those seniors who are just starting your essays, prepare to spend a few late nights working on that. You don't want to send in something that's kind of half-assed. Um, for those of you who are not yet seniors, uh, take note, you don't want to be in this position on October 27th of really not having worked on your essay until this point. Um, for those of you who don't have deadlines until January 1, don't feel like, oh, I've got plenty of time because you don't. You want to start working on them now. Uh, and if you're interested, we do, we've done a, quite a few shows around essays. So really look through the archives. There's all kinds of great stuff in there about how to get started, how to think about your topic, uh, how to edit once you've put together a draft, how to approach different supplements on some of the different applications that are required. So lots of really good stuff in the essay about writing, uh, in the archives about writing the essay. That's great. Right. That's so, so helpful just because I think that, you know, especially the time, the timing piece, because it just comes up so quickly upon us. Yes. And you want to make sure that if it's being considered as a key part of your application, that you're putting your best foot forward. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you're going to apply and they require an essay, it should be the best essay that you're capable of writing. So, all right, with that, uh, I have another question for you, Beth, and this comes from Jen, who asks, can the CSS profile be submitted before the student has submitted their common app? And Jen, yes, it actually can be submitted before you submit your common application. I recommend that families actually are filing for financial aid simultaneously that they're applying for admission. The family should actually be applying for financial aid as if they're going to be accepted to the colleges. So if your children are applying, I guess, early to colleges and you have earlier deadlines and maybe you're going to do the CSS profile for just those schools because there is a fee to this form, you just pay for those schools up front. You know, if the decisions come back that you're happy with and the financial aid uh, comes back that you're happy with, you know, go back into the profile at that point and add, you know, the additional schools that your child's applying regular decision. You know, um, if, if you, you know, apply at that point, you know, add those schools um, if, you're, if you're going to apply to those additional schools because there's a fee to this form. 
So, you know, if you can save a little bit of money and you don't have to put all the schools on at once, then, you know, you might be able to save yourself $16 for each, each subsequent school that you're adding to that. But, you, you know, ultimately you want to be applying for financial aid. You don't want to wait to hear the decisions uh, from the colleges before you're submitting these applications for financial aid. Got it. And I think this is also uh, a good rule of thumb in general is that you can get pieces of the application in. It doesn't all have to arrive together. So the CSS profile can arrive before you submit your Common App. Teacher recommendations can arrive before you have submitted your Common App. You can submit your Common App before your teachers submit their recommendations. You can submit test scores before you submit anything else. Um, colleges are used to getting things more piecemeal, and they have their systems during that stuff. So it isn't problematic if some of the parts arrive um, before the others. So Beth, we have we're we're going to go to break in about three minutes, and I think the next set of questions you had are going to be uh, probably require more time than that. So can you skip to um, a question that won't take quite as long to answer? For me? sure. Um, we actually have a question in from Elizabeth, so another Beth here. Fitting, she yes. Know, she wants to know if um, if C's are detrimental. Are C's detrimental? That's a very good question. Um, so. Certainly, C's are less and less common these days. I think more and more schools are, I don't know if they're loath to give them. I don't know if it's just that there are, you know, we deal with lots more students who are getting A's and B's. Um, But I do see students with C's on their transcript. I think the question is, you know, are they detrimental? There are more than 4,000 colleges in this country. So there are opportunities and options for everyone, even for students earning C's, even for students earning C's and D's. Um, So there is a next step in the process for people. I do think that the more selective you get, the more C's can hurt. Um, One C is not going to mean that you're absolutely not going to be successful at a selective institution. Um, But when you start having as many C's as you do B's or as many C's as you do A's and B's, then it starts to limit your options a little bit more. But it doesn't limit them so much that that your only choice is going to necessarily be uh, community college, which is open enrollment. It just means that the, the variety of schools or the number of schools that are going to seriously consider you with a lot of C's on your transcript is going to be smaller in number um, at that point. So they can be detrimental, but they aren't. They aren't necessarily detrimental to college in general, but they are going to not help if a student has their sights set on a more selective institution. Uh, Okay, so before we get to our next college finance question, we're going to take a really quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to answer as many more of your questions as we can. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that um, special announcement, although um, you're going to have to stick around. So we'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. We are going to jump right back into questions. And, Beth, I have another question for you. This also comes from Jen. I don't know if it's the same Jen who asked the CSS profile question. However, um, this is the question. When filling out the College Coast cal- college Cost Calculator, it always says that we will not get need-based aid. Should families that are more well-off still fill out the CSS profile? So, Jen, you know, if... You know, those net price calculators are coming back that you're not qualified for, you know, any type of need-based financial assistance, and your income is really at a level where you won't qualify for anything that's based upon your ability to pay, and the school doesn't require the profile for anything else other than need-based financial assistance, then I don't think there's a reason why you shouldn't opt out of doing the CSS profile. It's going to save you a little bit of money. I just want to add one caveat there. If you are going to opt out, it's important that you call the financial aid office and let them know that you're not going to be filling that form out because if part of your plan in paying for college is a student loan that your child is going to be able to get by filling out the FAFSA, you don't want that to be held up in the school awarding that student loan to your student because they're waiting for the family to complete the CSS profile. So I don't think it's, you know, I don't think the CSS profile needs to be completed by every single family. You can definitely save some money, but just let the school know what your plan is. So quick and you know, quick, quick answer to that question. Got it. All right. So what do you have for me? I think we have a nice long one, this next one. We do. So, um, Beth, we have actually a, we have a number of questions that have come in from a number of different families, a number of different listeners that are looking for some guidance regarding some of your more selective and Ivy League institutions. So what the you know what families are asking is is they want to know you know what type of SAT scores are schools like UPenn looking at uh, Stanford looking at are there more um, stringent requirements of things that they're looking for from residents of the state of the state that you live in like if we live in California is Stanford going to look at um, different requirements for residents of California and if you can give some tips to some of our some of our listeners, of what are Ivy League schools looking at in terms of SAT scores, GPA? What are things that students can be doing in high school to increase the chances that their child's going to get accepted to an Ivy? Sure. 
So this is a question that we get asked again and again, and we've actually done a few shows on this. So the first piece of advice I have would be to go back and look through the archives. We have done a few shows around what Ivy League schools are looking for. Um, I did a show this summer, actually, with um, my former colleague, Karen Crowley, who um, worked with us here at College Coach for many years and who is now um, a director of college guidance at a private school. And um, we talked about, you know, kind of how do you honestly evaluate yourself or your child as a competitive applicant or not for a highly selective institution? So those are some really great resources that I would take a look at. Um, I can't possibly cover all of that here except to say that at the most selective schools in the country, Stanford, Penn, um, all of the Ivies, places like MIT, Caltech, all of those places, um, the applicant pools are filled with students with spectacular grades and test scores. And by that, I would say typically primarily A's in the most rigorous curriculum available at the school. Uh, and then on the test score front, if you're taking the ACT, where the high score is a 36, I would say the bare minimum to really truly be competitive is probably a 33 um, and probably more like a 34, but the closer you get to 36, the better off you are. Similarly, on the SATs, the bare minimum in each section, I say, would be about a 700, but really that's the bare minimum. And to truly be competitive, I would be looking for more like a 750 or above, uh, not only in the SATs, but also on subject tests if those are required. Uh, and even if those are not required, a few of these schools have language that intimates that those are recommended but not required. The more selective you get, the more important it will be to have those tests if you can possibly take them. Um, and uh, so those are the kinds of scores that you get you're you're going to be looking for. And I know the tendency at this point is to say, well, you know, my son isn't quite there. However, he has all of these other things to offer. And I would say, okay, except that there are other kids with all those things to offer, plus they have the really great test scores. So you should assume that is really an extreme long shot if your child does not have the grades and test scores to start with. They are going to look at everything. So the other pieces that are going to play a significant role are going to be recommendation letters. Um, they're going to be those essays we just talked about uh, when I was answering the first question. Uh, what students do outside of the classroom. And there, it's not just run-of-the-mill, hey, I played a sport and I did some community service and I wrote for my school newspaper. Those are all wonderful things, but future Ivy League accepted students are going to be going well above and beyond. You know, they're going to be the captain of the team. They're going to be editor-in-chief of the newspaper. Um, typically, they're going to do things beyond just what they're capable of doing in school. So an example would be a student who is... Um, a top debate student uh, at their high school and then goes out and competes at a regional and often a national scale. Um, so really, uh, you know, as many times as we say the Ivy League is just a sports conference, it's still uh, the reality that people are very interested and obsessed with um, these schools. And I do get it. But I think that you need to kind of go in assuming that your child is not going to be particularly competitive, um, or even if your child is very competitive, assuming that there is a great likelihood that it won't work out just because there are so many phenomenal students who are going to get turned away. 
um, from these schools just because there aren't enough spots for them. Um, one thing that you did mention that I didn't touch on was around um, residency. So is Stanford looking for something special from students from California? No, but they are going to get a lot of applicants from California. So one thing those students are not going to offer is geographic diversity. And a place like Stanford and Penn and Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Brown and Dartmouth and Columbia um, and all of those schools, one thing they are looking for is to enroll students from every state in the union and as many different countries as possible. And so that kind of diversity in every shape and form is very important to them. Which means that if you're in that state, it might be a little bit harder to get in coming from that state if there are hundreds or even thousands of applicants from that state in a given year. Um, so but ultimately, again, the family. Oh, what, no, what were you going to say? This is the family who lives in California. They may have an easier chance of their child getting into Harvard than into Stanford, then because of the ge- geographic diversity. Possibly, although. Yeah, I would say that. Um, California, um, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, these schools send, or these states send many, many, many applicants to all of the Ivies and the highly selectives, including Stanford. And living in any of those states is not going to give you a whole lot of uh, geographic diversity. So I wouldn't recommend that you move, but if you were thinking about relocating, you know, Utah, uh, Washington State, Vermont, Maine, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, the, some of these places, Delaware, uh, Rhode Island, some of these places are going to offer a little bit more in the way of geographic diversity at some schools, not at all schools, but at some schools. So um, anyway, that's, that's what we can kind of touch on in the time that we have today. Uh, but I, I do strongly recommend going back to the archives, and I will tell you, this certainly won't be the last time we talk about Ivy League admissions. Um, so I'm sure there will be other shows that will um, give you more information that will be useful. Um, but let's jump to a finance question. And this one comes from Christine, who asks, what is the best way to figure out the likelihood of an out-of-state applicant qualifying for financial aid to make out-of-state tuition affordable? So I'm assuming so- she means... With an in, with a state in school, state. yes, yeah. state, with an out of state public institution. That's the way I was looking at it too. Yeah. The question before talked about the college cost calculators. Uh, so I've, I assume that was referring to the net price calculator. So that was that is what I direct on Christine uh, using the net price calculators on the college's websites to figure out how affordable you know is that school to your family. Will your student qualify for any type of financial aid, uh, first and foremost. Look at the college websites. Um, A lot of times the financial aid, the scholarships specifically, are formulaic. Students have to have a minimum GPA. They have to have a minimum SAT or ACT score. If your child is meeting those criteria, there's a better chance that they might be offered one of those scholarships. So I can give you a better picture of affordability at an out-of-state public college. Depending on the state that you live in, depending on the state that your child wants to go to uh, school in, there's also state reciprocity agreements. We did a few segments some time ago, so going back into our archives and looking for those segments when we talked about state reciprocity agreements. For the, south, for the southern region, the academic common market, uh, if you're in the Midwest, the uh, 
uh, Midwestern Exchange, if you're out on the West Coast, the Western Undergraduate Exchange, if you're in New England, where we're located, the New England Regional uh, Student Program. Depending on the major that your student wants to study, depending on the, the way that the um, state reciprocity agreements are set up, uh, if there might be more stringent academic and admissions requirements for your student to get in, you also might qualify for discounts that way. While you're not going to be paying necessarily what in-state students pay, your family won't be paying what non-residents are paying either. It's typically about 150% of what residents are, are paying. So it's another way to make out-of-state public institutions more affordable for families. And then also depends on the state that you live in. Uh, some states where you might live on a border or neighboring states like Wisconsin and Minnesota have some type of reciprocity agreements also with state institutions. So look at all of your opportunities because there might be opportunities for your child to attend an out-of-state public institution which might not be as expensive as you think. And again, go back to our archives because we have um, a number of different shows that we did on the state reciprocity agreements. Awesome. Yes, we did a whole series on those. Um, I'm sorry, was there anything else that you wanted to say? I didn't want to cut you off. No, not at all. I was going to say I have a question for you, actually. All right. (laughs) Hit me. (laughs) So this one actually comes from one of our listeners, Allison. And her question is, do you believe the online college profile websites like Naviance are accurate indicators for our students? Her worry is that it doesn't pick up the the specific details like private school, class size, et cetera, and that can really make a significant difference and the student will not be able to reach for a college that might be, able, that might be within the grasp because the program indicates that it's really out of reach for that student. So what are your thoughts and dependence on that technology uh, would be appreciated. So, Allison, what's interesting is that you went in completely the opposite direction that I was thinking um, or what I think about when I think about Naviance. So you mentioned Naviance specifically, so let me um, specifically talk about that. Naviance is something that many schools in this country offer to their families and students. And I'm not sure if you are talking about the scattergrams that are on Naviance or just general college information that you can find out in Naviance. So the scattergrams are, um, if a high school offers Naviance, what they often will do is they plug in information. So they're collecting data of who has been accepted to that school over the years. And that allows a student to log into their account on Naviance and see where they fall, sort of plotted into a scattergram where their grades and test scores place them in relation to other students who have applied in the past. And you can see if most students with your profile have been admitted, most students have not been admitted, or maybe it's kind of 50-50. And that can tell you a little bit about whether that school is going to be a match, a reach, or a safety. What I think about when I look at those is that they don't tell the whole story, but usually they don't tell the whole story from a, um, it's actually going to be more selective than you think it is point of view. So what they don't take into consideration or what you're not seeing is what the students were involved in outside of the classroom. You're not seeing whether or not that student who you know, nobody else got in with your stats except for one other student, but what you might not be seeing is that that student was a recruited athlete or that student was a development case, their parents had built a building on campus, or um, that student was in some way underrepresented on that campus and therefore um, was an attractive applicant for that reason. 
I do think that regardless of how you and I are looking at that, the important piece is that the the those never tell the whole story. I, I, I would caution against assuming that because they don't know about the school your child attends or how big their class is, that that automatically means that your child is going to be more competitive. Um, at the same time, I do think sometimes schools... Um, if you're just looking at general information about the school, sometimes schools can calculate their own GPAs in a way so that a school that really is accepting students with slightly lower GPAs is reporting a higher um, average GPA than is really truly accurate. They're not really lying. They're just using the statistical information in a way that kind of benefits them. So all of this to say that you can never rely on one source as the be-all, end-all. Um, and certainly I do believe that students should reach, um, maybe have a couple of reach options on the list of schools they apply to. But I, what I don't want to have happen for anybody who's listening is to fall into the trap of thinking, well, I know that the, that the data says this, but they don't know my kid, and really my kid has so much more to offer. Um, you do have to take a really honest look at yourself if you are the student or at your student if you are the parent of one, and really be honest about yourself about, yes, of course they're wonderful and fabulous, and in many cases, of course, they could go and do the work. But they're also your child and you're a little biased and you need to kind of step away from that a little bit and really be honest and say, yes, I, I think she's fabulous. But when I look at the data, I can see clearly that um, it may be a much bigger reach than we're really truly anticipating. Um, okay. So let's jump into, we have time for one more financial aid question before we go to our second break of the day. And this question comes from Armin, who asks, does early admission or early decision impact one's chances of receiving a merit scholarship or non-need-based financial aid? Good question. <laughs> Great question. Armin, actually, this is a question that comes up, I think, on a daily basis with families, especially when they're figuring out, do we apply early to colleges? Does it increase our chances of our kids getting, not, as you said, non-need-based financial assistance merit scholarships? And there really isn't any type of proven you know, statistics that states one way or the other. You know, students get better financial aid packages if their children are applying early to colleges. But one thing to keep in mind is that merit-based scholarships are also a recruitment tool that colleges use to increase the likelihood that students are going to accept that institution over another, over another institution that they've been accepted to. So while the applicant pool may be smaller and your student may have a better chance of getting into the school, the school's not going to go out with all of their money to, the early, to all of the early students. So yep. they need to keep money reserved for the students who are going to apply a regular decision, uh, maybe applying early action who still have choice. So I don't think that's they're going to go out with more money. I think that they're going to put their best foot forward uh, for families whose you know, students decide to apply early. But I don't think necessarily you're going to get a better package than a family who applies you know, regular decision or you know, early action. Uh, and running the net price calculator is another tool that I continue to direct families to, you know, going and making that decision 
with putting your best foot forward and having all of that information up front. What is that going to look like? How much are we going to be expected to pay when you're making the decision? Is this the best method and the best route for my child to apply? Having conversations with the college, you know, looking at what type of scholarships they do offer. What's the profile of the student who's offered those scholarships and how does your student compare? You're going to be able to make a more informed decision if that's the route for your, for you, your child and your family to go when deciding if you know, early is, a, is a better way to apply than maybe applying like an early action or a regular decision where you might have also additional options to compare and consider. And you know, not that you're going to get a better financial aid package one way or the other, but you might have a little bit maybe more negotiating power, and that might be something that is a little bit more important to you to be able to negotiate to see what else you're going to get and be going back to that school later to see if there's anything else they can do for you. Yeah, and I mean, I have to say my experience is that if you're applying to a school with merit scholarships, and that is the key differentiator here, not financial aid, but merit scholarships, that most schools are not using their merit scholarships on the early decision applicants. And um, there may be some that do, but they're using those to lure students to come to campus. And if they know you're coming... Why would they use that money on you? So I think if you're looking for merit money, I wouldn't go early decision. I don't think that contradicts anything you just said, Beth. I just think I wanted to strongly you know, suggest that. I also think if the school is a reach and you're hoping to get in by applying early decision, then the likelihood is you're not getting merit money anyway because right. this, point. You know, they, they don't give you money um, to come. They assume that getting in is going to be the enticement because it was a reach for you. The, the merit money goes to those students who look like some of the best applicants in the pool that year who they think are going to have other choices. So, And, and just also that it doesn't mean that they're not going to get merit money. I mean, if it's a strong student, you know, they do go out with some merit money and, you know, for early students mm-hmm. also. So I don't want, you know, Amin and other listeners to think that they don't offer any merit money to early students. They do. Um, but, you know, as you said, Beth, I think definitely, you know, you want to consider, you know, how strong of a student you are and, you know, right. also affordability for early decision because you're making a decision at that point in time that you're committed to that college. Exactly. Without the opportunity to review other packages. So yeah. not the best choice for everybody, for sure. Definitely. All right. What do we have for admissions? So we have um, a few more questions. And uh, so let's see. We have a question that came in here. Um, from Zoe, and Zoe wants to know, why do some college applications ask to list all of the schools to which you are applying, and how is this information used in the, by the admissions staff? Uh, okay, so basically, I don't really, well, actually, let me stay, take a step back. The reason most colleges ask this question is really they're just gathering data. They want to know who they're getting cross applications from. They want to understand um, where the students who are applying to them are also applying. Um, I still don't like it when they ask it. And my advice is usually that question is optional. My strong advice is just leave it blank. There's no harm if you don't fill it out. uh, And I would leave it blank. If, however, you feel like you just can't leave it blank because, I don't know, you just are OCD that way, not to make light of OCD, but just that, you know, it really would pain you to leave something blank, then what I would do is I would list maybe two or three other schools of equal selectivity or lesser selectivity uh, and leave it at that. 
Um, so again, really the way they're using this is just data gathering. That's really all it's for. Uh, feel free to leave that blank if it's, if it's optional, which it almost always is. Um, all right, we're going to quickly take a break, the last break of the day. And then when we come back, we're going to have some more financial aid and admissions questions. And I'll be making that special announcement that I've been promising uh, throughout the show. So come right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We have a lot more questions that we're hoping to answer. I don't know how many we're going to get through. But before I get to that, I did want to make a special announcement. Um, as you all know, Halloween is approaching. And after that, for me anyway, it feels like I just, the days just fly by and all of a sudden it's New Year's. But between now and then, there is going to be Thanksgiving. And immediately following Thanksgiving, we have Black Friday. We are going to be announcing a special Black Friday promotion um, however, we are going to offer early access for our Getting In listeners. So if any of you out there are thinking about um, hiring someone to work with their child through this process or help you as a family out or if um, you know you were hoping to get some assistance, we are going to be having a special promotion. Um, and we're giving you all who are listening here today early access to that promotion. So what you want to do is you want to submit the form that you'll find at getintocollege.com slash getting dash in. So again, it's getintocollege.com slash getting dash in. So if you go there, you fill out the form, um, you can get the details on the promo and uh, find out more about the kinds of services that we offer. All right, back to the questions Beth, I have one for you, and this one comes to us from Julie, who says, she doesn't really ask a question so much as, 
offers a suggestion. Please talk about need-blind schools that provide most, if not all, demonstrated need. Uh, Julie, uh, we actually did a segment, you know, on this. So if you go back to the archives, uh, we talk about uh, need-blind admission. I think it was, I think October of last year. But again, if you just dig through our archives, you'll be able to dig that one up. And we go into a lot more detail. But the first thing you want to think about is there's really a really small group of colleges that are need-blind and meet full need. And they're your more selective colleges. I think there's under 50 or less colleges that fall into that category. So we're looking at your Ivies, your MIT, uh, Stanford, Northwestern, or some of those schools. So first, I mean, your child has to be able to get into those schools. Um, and then, you know, they're not going to look at, you know, your family's ability to pay, and they will meet uh, full need. But I think it's also, I think it's the other thing that you also need to take into consideration, too, is, there are other schools that are need-aware, and they may not be need-aware through the entire application process. So it may, it may be when they're coming down to accepting the last 5 or 10% of their applicants um, at schools like Reed, uh, Carleton, and Scripps, where actually I attended school. I actually remember that, that back, in, back when I was in college, and I was a work-study student in the admissions office, and we were the admissions Counselors were admitting students, and we were coming down to our last group of students, maybe last 50, 100 slots, and we were going through the files. And that's the point where they became need-aware, and they were looking at the family's ability to pay. But the rest of the applicant pool who they accepted, they never looked at the family's ability to pay. So if your child is a strong student and can get into the school under their own attributes and accolades, then... Need may need your ability to pay may never even be factored in, so I don't want you to rule out you know schools that may take need into consideration, but you also want to pay close attention to what percentage of need do they meet because that's going to be the larger component for you of you know how much are you going to have to pay? Is it your family contribution that's calculated off the financial aid applications? Are they going to gap you that you have to come up with additional money above and beyond that calculated family contribution? But, you know, whatever the choice is for the, you know, the school, the school that your child is attending or considering, you know, ask the school, you know, what percentage of need do you meet? And also the college board is another resource that colleges often report that information, what percentage of need they meet too. So I don't right. think I want you to rule out specifically only schools that are, you know, completely need blind. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. Um, you, you just, you can't, you shouldn't assume that just because a school does consider ability to pay, that that automatically means that your kid is going to have a significantly harder time to get in if you need money. Because it sometimes, as you said, in many cases, it's not even going to be a factor um, in the process. Okay. We are running up against, uh, this hour just flies by, so let's try and get a few more in if we possibly can. So, Beth, we have a question that came in from one of our listeners, Gretchen. Uh, she is a senior who is visually, um, has a visual impairment called convergence insufficiency, which hinders her reading speed, fluency, and comprehension. She reads about 100 words per minute slower than her peers. She's given a little bit extra time when she completed her ACTs, and her reading score went from a 23 to a 33, so it's still being increased there. 
her yeah. high school also allows her additional time um, on tests. So her question is, is she wants to know whether that they should add this information to the common application that's extra in, in the extra info section. And our admissions officer is going to look at that unfavorably um, since that they're going to see the same accommodations in college or do some of the colleges look at other things with learning disability and what type of help in, is there in diversity with their incoming class? And she also wants to know, does she also mention any type of extra time that was given to her child in taking the, a- the ACTs um, on the application too, which, sure. which complements that higher score? Got it. Um, okay, so a couple of things. The first is that um, colleges are legally required not to um, discriminate against students with learning differences and to provide certain accommodations for those students when they are students there. Um, the second thing is we did a show on this two episodes ago. Sally talked about um, this whole question of whether to disclose or not to disclose. What I would say here is that learning um, disabilities do not are not considered when colleges are considering diversity. So, no, disclosing is not going to help with diversity. That's not going to be considered a diversity piece. Um, and then the second thing is... Um, To to my mind, I would not disclose this. I think the only time really to disclose a learning difference is if there is going to be something that's unexplainable on the application that really requires you um, to to explain that away. Like you didn't do very well. The student didn't do very well in ninth and 10th grade. And then suddenly there's a huge change. And it wasn't that the student suddenly became... Um, focused on school. Instead, it was that they had a a learning disability that was diagnosed and then they got on medication and now suddenly everything has changed. Um, In this situation, I don't think you need to explain a jump from 23 to 33. I think it's enough that, hey, maybe she did some test prep and she just did better. I do not think you want to tell them that she got extended time. There is no way for them to know she got extended time unless um, you tell them. So it won't be noted on the test scores. Um, So I would leave all of that out as part of the application process. She's applying as a student who had some great achievements. She needed some extra accommodations. She got them, and there really is no reason to let the colleges know that. On the flip side, once she is admitted, I think then you want to bring up the question so you can find out more about the supports that are available to students with learning disabilities. Um, Because like you say, if she's got extended time in high school, that likely is going to carry on into college, and you want to make sure that's going to be a good environment for her to get those pieces. Um, But my advice in this particular situation is I would not disclose, I would not make any indication about any of this stuff. I don't think it is overly relevant to understanding who she is and what she could contribute when she gets to your campus. Um, So we are running up against it. And unfortunately, Beth, I don't have time to ask you another question, but I do know that we got a couple of questions from Mm -hmm. people wondering about um, whether or not they should hire someone. And I did just talk about the special promotion that we have going on. Um, So I have a couple of thoughts about whether or not you do decide to hire someone. First of all, we do this show because hopefully we're able to provide free information that you can then use to help your your child. I understand, however, that sometimes you don't have the time to go back and listen to all the archives or go through everything, and you could benefit from some additional assistance. Um, I would say that I do think it can be useful to hire someone, whether that's us or somebody else that's nearer to you. Um, Someone asks about when is the right time to hire. 
someone, um, they have an eighth grader, I would say that ninth grade is not too soon. Um, realistically, what you would get from someone in ninth and 10th grade is really more assistance on, are you making good choices um, in terms of curriculum, in terms of extracurricular activities, um, thinking about what you're going to do with your summers, developing a plan for standardized testing. Really what you accomplish in those first few years are making sure that there are good choices being made, which sets the student up for greater opportunity uh, later on when it comes to the college process. So I think ninth grade is probably the earliest. Um, most people come to us in the junior year, but I do love it when people come in ninth and 10th grade because I think we have the ability to be a little more impactful and to help for a longer period of time. Um, for the person who asked um, that the school only has three guidance counselors, I think you just need to make sure you understand what the person's credentials are, who you hire, um, and you want to ask what makes them an expert, what they know about the process, and how that makes them someone who can, in fact, help your student. Um, all of us are former admissions officers, and I do think that gives us a special level of insight that isn't, um, that's tough to come by if you haven't done this work. That doesn't mean there aren't great people out there doing this. Um, but just that that is a challenge. Um, really quickly, because we're really coming up on it, thank you so much, Beth, for being here today. Um, next week, Ian is hosting, and we're doing more in our Schools in Application Workshop. Um, we're also going to be addressing the fact that a lot of high school students need more than just college prep and the value of getting a job during high school. Um, great stuff in our archives. Um, don't forget, we do have our special Black Friday promo. We're giving you an early access to that. Fill out the form at getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. And we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.